You're listening to What Will It Take? Conversations with legends and movement makers with journalist and author Marianne Schnall. Hello and welcome to What Will It Take? I'm Marianne Schnall and I'm excited to launch this podcast. And I want to tell you a little bit about why I decided to launch the podcast and really what I'm hoping to accomplish. I feel like in my two decades as an interviewer and journalist, I have been so privileged and fortunate to interview some of the world's most renowned and inspiring thought leaders, activists, and artists over the years, all who are contributing to positive change in the world on a myriad of just important themes and issues and topics that I think are really always timely. And I'm excited to share both my previous interviews with some of these incredible thought leaders, as well as new ones that I'm constantly doing as a way to both offer encouragement, inspiration, hope, ideas. Many of these people have all kinds of really useful ideas about solutions to many pressing problems that we face in this country and the world. And also, ultimately, I think because I've had the privilege of having such close encounters with so many well-known people who we think of as these kind of untouchable celebrities often, I've had very personal interactions and really gotten to know some of them. And so I'm hoping to also share my personal insights, some anecdotes, really to let everyone know that many of these people that we put on these pedestals go through so many of the same challenges, the same experiences, the same obstacles, and are very relatable. And to be able to learn from what their experiences are, to be inspired by what their life lessons and wisdom are. And also, I just feel in this time where there's so much negative news out there that can really feel very depressing and disconcerting, to offer kind of a hopeful, positive narrative where we can all feel like we're part of a community and a movement of people that are all working together to foster positive change and really to transform the world and evolve humanity's consciousness. I've had the pleasure of interviewing Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi several times over the years. The first time I interviewed her was back in 2011 at a women's symposium when she was accepting a women's leadership award. And back then, she was already talking about some of the points that she continues to talk so eloquently and articulately about in terms of calling on women and girls to know their power. I wound up interviewing her again for my book, What Will It Take to Make a Woman President? And she has contributed numerous quotes and offered me many interviews over the years. However, there was something particularly thrilling about getting to interview her. Back on October 15th of 2018, I held a women's leadership event at the NYU Skirball Center. And this was just a few weeks before the midterm elections. And she came out of her very busy schedule to do an interview with me. And I think it was a foreshadowing of everything was to come. She felt pretty confident in the fact that we were at a kind of, she called it a tipping point moment. And she was right in terms of her call to action that women were really coming into their power, marching, running for office in these record numbers. And she already sort of predicted what wound up happening, which was that women wound up making history in terms of the numbers of women that are now in Congress and the diversity that we now see. 
What I really found remarkable about interviewing Nancy Pelosi is that she really does embody so much of the messages that she tries to instill in others. She is constantly reminding women to own their power, know what they've accomplished. Also, this whole notion of not worrying so much about what other people think. If you get knocked down, you just kind of get right back up. And also the sense that she is, you know, rightfully entitled to the accomplishments that she has earned. There was something really, for me, particularly amazing about talking to her before she wound up being able to celebrate this other historic milestone that she's now a part of. She wound up becoming the female speaker of the House now two times in a row, which is historic. And the fact that she sort of walked into that whole experience with really feeling like she knew that she was the right person, who had the right qualities and qualifications to be the speaker. And even though when there's criticism around her, she always just comes from a place of just being unwavering in her sense of herself and what she has to offer, and not in a way that ever feels sort of, you know, coming from a place of ego, but from coming of a place of service. One of the other things that really strikes me about Speaker Pelosi is that while she is sort of strong and tough and smart and confident, she is also exceptionally warm and open-hearted and giving. And, you know, even in the sense that she, even to the event, had brought her daughter and her son-in-law and her husband and her grandchildren to the fact that she managed in what must have been an insanely busy time to write me a personal thank you letter that I received after the event, thanking me for inviting her to be part of the event and also praising me for my own leadership, which really did mean a lot to me. To the fact that she also is somebody, and this is important for women, who is willing to talk about the fact that she is a mother and that she is a grandmother. She always jokes about that she went from being, you know, sort of a housewife to a house speaker. She considers all of these different roles and experiences of being a woman as as her strengths rather than having to hide those things. And I think that's something else that is really important for women to understand that we can bring all of our whole selves and all of our various aspects of our lives. So in this interview, I think you will hear some of this. You'll be able to hear sort of just this, you know, duality of of her very inspiring words and and wisdom, and yet also how personal she is, how warm she is, how sincere and genuine she is. One of the things that she always talks about being the most important advice she ever received was to be yourself that, you know, to authentically be yourself. And I find that even for her, you can tell as you're listening to her that she is really sort of authentically speaking from her heart. And I feel like we, we need more people who do speak in that very personal, candid way. So let's join in to my conversation with Speaker Pelosi. This is taking place on October 15th at the NYU Skirball Center of 2018. First of all, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Um, and, you know, as the first female speaker of the House, what was it like both to sort of be the first woman to serve in that role and also to achieve that historic milestone? Well, first, let me thank you, Marianne, for hosting us here this evening to Jay Wegman and Scurable Center for uh, their auspices under which we gather. I want to thank Pat Mitchell for invitation from TED Women for the invitation to be here, uh, because all of you are contributing to this important dialogue about the empowerment of women. 
which I believe that there is nothing more wholesome for America, for our politics, for our government, for any walk of life than the increased participation of women in government and in politics. Women know your power. You are needed. And we'll talk more about that. What was it like to become? Well, first of all, what was exciting was winning the election because that was the key to uh, taking the majority. So in 05 and 06, Harry Reid and I determined that we were going to win the election for the Democrat. I don't mean to sound partisan, but you invited me. What can I say? <laughs> so, and so people said, oh, it's a time for a permanent Republican majority. President Bush is at 58 percent, and he was very high in the polls. But we decided that we needed to win for many different reasons, for, for our values, for the issues that we cared about, which we can share in our conversation. And we know how to do it, so we won. And then it was sort of inevitable since we won and I was leading the effort to win in the House and Harry in the Senate that we would become the leaders. Frankly, we were just so busy. I really never sat there and thought, huh, I'm the first woman to have this job or I'm the first Italian-American to have this job or I'm the first Californian to have this job. And never, the only thing that I wondered about was that I just couldn't understand why a woman had not had that job before. That was what I was really more concerned about and how we would make a path to many more women having opportunity, because it really is so important. Now, you said there's 20% in the Congress, but we in the House Democrats, who are over 30% of our House Democrats, are women. And over 50% are women, people of color, and LGBTQ uh, members of the community. So we have a very diverse caucus in this election. Of course, we want more and we will have more. Many women marched, and now they're, uh, now they're running, and it's a great thing. But uh, I, I guess I thought about it more as I was leaving the office, that it was a great privilege to be speaker. It's the third highest position in the land, president, vice president, speaker of the House. It has awesome power. And uh, we spent time passing the Affordable Care Act, repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, reform Wall Street. A lot of, that's where we really... But I was thinking about more than uh, the, the title that I had, but the purpose and the mission uh, that I went there uh, for. I think every time that we break a glass ceiling, it's so important to acknowledge and celebrate and we, you know, get closer to breaking the others. So there has been, you know, progress in, in different areas in terms of women's leadership, but progress in terms of women in politics seems especially slow. Why do you think that is? And what do you see as the pathways to creating change, to have more women in elected office? Well, let me just say that it wasn't a glass ceiling. It was a marble ceiling. <laughs> it was very hard because for over 200 years, there had been a pecking order of who would be next and who would be next and who would be next. So when I, people asked me to run and I agreed to do so, the others were saying, who said she could run? She's not in the lineup to be here. And I said, well, you know, we've been waiting over 200 years. We think it's time uh, for a woman uh, to uh, proceed into the leadership. And so I give credit to my colleagues, men as well as women, but the men especially for having the courage to elect a woman Speaker of the House, a tribute to their courage and uh, pioneership. I do believe this. I do believe, as I said earlier, nothing more wholesome for our political process. But I do believe that it, if we reduce the role of money in politics and increase the level of civility in our political discussion, we will have more women in politics, more young, younger people, more minorities, more people of color, but especially more women. And some of the challenges that women face, don't worry about that. 
That's their problem. That's not yours. And women just have to have a confidence in taking inventory of their, what they have accomplished, whether it's being a mom, being a teacher, being a small businesswoman, being in the military, whatever it happens to be, whatever combination of experiences, place a gold star on all of it. Be proud of it and be your authentic self. The best advice I ever got running for office was be yourself. Authenticity is everything in women. Every one of you just think of what you have to offer and how, again, the connection you personally have and how unique that is. And then so what they'll do is they'll come after women, and you saw this in some campaigns, quite obviously. They come after women and try to minimize their stature, their accomplishment, that. But they also try to go after women on, on ethics because there's a, a presumption that women are more ethical in politics than men. That is an advantage that women have going into elections. So the other side will try to undermine the ethics of a woman. You saw that in the presidential, I think, very clearly. And uh, you just can't let them do it. You know, that's, as I say, that's their problem. This is a tough arena. It's not for the faint of heart. You jump into the arena. You have to be ready to take a punch, throw a punch. I'm just being honest with you. And, uh, and because you know your why. Why would you run? You run because you believe in something. You believe in a better future for our children, whether, whether it's about believing in uh, preserving the planet, whatever, you're, whatever attracted you to the public sector. Know your subject. I always say to people, know your why, know your what. Know your subject very well so that when you speak, people respect your judgment and they will respect it in other areas too because they still uh, your knowledge. And then know your, be a strategic thinker. Show people how you have a path and how you're going to accomplish what you set out to do. But mostly when you run, if you run, because that applies to almost anything you do, but if it's running for office, just keep listening to constituents. Your job and your job title and your job description are one and the same representative. Can't represent it unless you listen to them. So that's what I would say to women. Have the confidence. Don't pay any attention to what they have to say about women, this, that. It's their problem. It's not yours. Or somebody wants to call the activism or truth speaking of women as an angry mob, that's their problem. That's not, uh, that's not ours. Uh, and it's just, it's inevitable. It will happen. Uh, and again, nothing gave us more courage and more encouragement than the march. Women marched and now they are running. And isn't it wonderful? And women will win when women vote. You know, sometimes this conversation about the need for um, more, you know, women's representation gets framed as sort of being, you know, a women's issue or being mm-hmm. an- somehow anti-male, which of course it's not. What, you know, what are the sort of unique qualities that you think, without making generalizations, that women bring? Why is it important that we have women? Well, it's not that we were saying women are better than men, and thank you to the men who are here, including my husband, my son-in-law, my grandsons, <laughs> Thomas and Paul, and my daughter, Alexandra. It's not that we're just saying that the beauty is in the mix. You have to have a diversity of opinion at the table, whether it's men and women, women, people of color, young people, LGBTQ. You have to have diversity at the table. It's absolutely essential. It's what our founders had in mind. When they said e pluribus unum, 
from anyone, they couldn't possibly imagine how many we would be or how different we would be from each other. But they knew we had to strive for some unity. And for that unity, we have to all be at, uh, at the table. Having said that, I think that women bring a special skill of consensus building. You're all too young, but we used to say, when I used to hear when I was young, people say a woman's intuition, intuitive thinking, making a judgment. Because women, as moms and caregivers and all that, have to make decisions like that. And so you're used to knowing what you're doing and basing a decision based on knowing what you're doing. And so that's why I say, know your purpose, know your subject. When you act, people will respect it. But I do think that people say to me frequently, especially when I'm a speaker, after a meeting, they say, do you know how different that meeting would have been if a man were conducting it? It would just be different in terms of consensus building. And one other thing, women listen. Women listen. This is an important thing. Have you ever been at the table at a meeting or something where you'll say something great, and nobody will pick it up, and two seconds later, a man will say the same thing, and they'll say, what a great idea. And then you're like, what? I just said that. But I've only concluded lately, because it always amazed me, but I only concluded lately that the reason that they didn't salute the woman when she said it is they weren't listening. They weren't listening. So you have to make sure they hear you. And so that women listen and they listen to everyone respectful of opinion. I'm not saying some men don't. I'm just saying my experience is that uh, uh, we're all better off if we all have, have a voice at the table hearing each other. Right now, obviously, it's, you know, it, well, first of all, it just looks just very daunting to run for office. And it can look, you know, a little dysfunctional right now um, in terms of, you know, the status of, of politics in Washington. Mm-hmm. So what message of encouragement would you offer to, you know, a young woman who's considering running for office? Why, why should she run, given those obstacles? America needs you. When I went to Congress, there were 12 Democratic women and 11 Republicans. Now we have 65 Democratic women. I made a decision, not only me, other people, Emily's List came along. A decision was made to have many more. But internally, I knew that there's 435 people there. 23 are women? You must be kidding. So uh, we made a decision on our side, which hasn't been made quite on the other side, but I'm not here to talk about it. So what? But it's a decision. <laughs> okay. It's a decision. And, of course, in our side, therefore, having so many women, we would be able to elect the first woman Speaker of the House, even though men voted for me too. But I don't think if there weren't so many women, there would have ever been a woman Speaker of the House, which has awesome, awesome power. And by the way, when you have the gavel, people listen. (laughs) (laughs) As far as a message of hope is concerned, just know this, you're needed. The country needs this. And I went to Congress in my 40s when my children were grown, or almost grown. My daughter, Alexandra, was going to high school. But Paul and I, four other children were already in, high, in college. Uh, but I want younger women to be running so that they can achieve seniority on committees much earlier and the rest rise to the leadership in a much earlier way. But more importantly, so that young women and moms across America or just working women Across America can see somebody who shares their experience at this having a seat at the table to speak for them, whether they represent them in their district, representing them 
at the seat at the table. And I mean, in, in addition to the fact of just running for office, I feel like right now, you know, actually it's been amazing to see just the level of engagement of, of everyone who, I mean, I think that is looking at the country and, and wants to have a voice. But right now it's very easy with all the problems that we're facing to feel disempowered that there's not, you know, anything that one person can do to make a difference. What, you know, words of inspiration would you offer to, to them? I don't know how inspiring this will be, but it is politically organizing. Don't agonize, organize. Don't worry about this, that, or the other thing. Just get out there and make the difference. These women, this is not for the faint of heart, have decided to go forward. We have to help them win. Again, people of color, young people, LGBTQ, others as well, so that diversity is present at the table. But it is, uh, you cannot be get down on what's happening. That just is a victory for the other side. I say to my colleagues all the time, no wasted time, no underutilized resources, and no regrets the day after the election that we could have done something more. If I may be political for a moment, we must win this election. We have made a decision to win this election. We think everything is at stake, including uh, the balance of power in our Constitution, three separate branches of government, uh, all of the liberties, a woman's right to choose, LGBTQ, uh, gun safety, immigration, uh, equality in our, in our economy, uh, name any subject, climate, the air we breathe, water our children drink, all of it at stake in this election. And so we can't just moan and groan about, oh, isn't this terrible? Our country is a great country. It can withstand anything. And, uh, and again, women will make a tremendous, tremendous difference. So I, uh, if, I, if it's inspiring to you, it's a prediction. It's, it's not a fact because the election hasn't occurred. But if the election were today, if the election were today, we would have a tremendous victory and it would be led by women. And that is a victory for America, not just Democrats or Republicans or anybody else. It's about a victory for our country. And I know you have a tremendous panel coming up. I feel as if I'm the warm-up for the panel. They're great educators, candidates, uh, organizers, and the rest. Uh, I would introduce them all, except that's not my role. Uh, but I am very proud to be on a program that includes them. But it is, it's not a zero-sum game. This is important, I think, to say to women. Sometimes it used to be, and another time, or even shortly before now, one woman's success was like, well... We have a woman, and no, any woman's success is your success. That is just the way it is. It just, it just is amplified. So it isn't about if somebody succeeds and that, that takes the place of me. It is not a zero-sum game. That success prepares the way for your success. And what I'm encouraged by is the fathers of daughters who have written to me to say, thank you for opening another door of opportunity for my daughter. And when moms say it, you understand. When grandmoms say it, you understand. But when dads and grandfathers say it, something different is happening in how our girls are raised in our country. Uh, uh, Pat Mitchell once asked me at a TED Talk, what, if I were queen of the world, what would I do? The one thing would I do? And of course, I was telling her I would be very bipartisan and con- uh, consensus building. A lot. But what I really would do if I were queen of the world and had, didn't have to answer to anyone would be the education of girls and women worldwide. Worldwide. Because I think that would be the most transformative difference 
in our society. Underutilized resource, but less so and less so, more utilized, more important to the success of our country. Our motto is, when women succeed, America succeeds. And that's just the way it is for any country in the world. But we know it to be an absolute fact in our country. So know your power. Go for it. Be yourself. Don't be afraid. Be confident. The world is waiting for you. You're, uh, be ready. I mean, I had no idea. I, I went from kitchen to Congress, from housewife to house speaker. I had no intention of ever running for Congress. None. And then all of a sudden, I did. I said to my daughter, Alexandra, Mommy has a chance to run for Congress. She's in high school, going to college. Uh, no, just going to senior year. I said, how can I, um, it's right with you if I would run. I don't know if I'll win. She said, Mother, get a life. <laughs> And then I said, well, I'll be gone it's like three nights a week. She said, what teenage girl doesn't want her mother gone three nights a week? <laughs> so uh, Alexandra got me off to my start. Fortunately, my husband and she bonded very well, and, uh, and it all worked out. But it is really important, and I'm so in awe, as I say, of women who can balance home and work and all the rest, young women. That's what we really need people to see in every elective office we'll be seeing a soon-to-be state senator, Biagi, to talk, a young woman about her career. Yeah, well, I won't do the introduction. <laughs> but I'll just tell you this, and maybe some of you have heard me say this before because I think it's important, and I'll close with this, I think, Marianne. It's up to you. I, um, when I first went to my first meeting as leader, I was going to the White House, and I wasn't speaker yet. I was just uh, President Bush was president. We were still in the minority. But it was my first meeting in the leadership. And was going to the White House. I wasn't apprehensive or anything because I've been to the White House many times as an appropriator, as an intelligence person. And uh, when I went there, went in the room, and there they were, the president, the vice president, the Democratic and Republican leadership of the House and Senate, and 10 people or something around a table. And when I went into the room, I thought, oh, this is not like any other meeting I've ever been to in the White House. In fact, it's not like any other meeting that any woman has ever been to in the White House, because here I am going into this meeting, not as an appointee of the president, which would be a great thing, not putting down the cabinet, that's important, but my power at that table was not derived from the president's appointment, it was derived from the vote of my colleagues in the House of Representatives. So I had my own power at the table, representing me. So... Let's just say you're treated differently that way. And when I sat down at the table, and President Bush, very gracious and lovely, President George W. Bush, very gracious and welcoming and this and that, all of a sudden I felt really squeezed in in my chair. I mean, I was just squeezed into my chair. He's saying all these nice things, welcoming the first woman, oh, probably hear some new things from you. And um, (laughs) I was squeezing my chair as he was being nice. And I couldn't figure out what it was, and all of a sudden I realized. And on that chair was Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, Sojourner Truth, Alice Paul, and everybody you could think of, they were all sitting on that chair with me, right there on that one chair. And then I could hear them say, at last we have a seat at the table. Wow. And then they were gone. And my first thought was, we want more. We want more. But it, it always, always an inspiration of what our founders did 
uh, to give women, get women to have the right to vote. When they got the right to vote, people said, the press said, women given the right to vote, not given, worked for, marched, fought, starved, were starved, separated from their families, alienated, and the rest to fight for the empowerment of women. We stand on their shoulders. They really fought the fight. And then over the years, more people fighting the fight until we did get the right to vote and then women's right to choose and so many other things that are at risk now. So when you're thinking about running, remember what is at risk and the difference that you can make. And the shoulders we stand on of those women, and I have a responsibility to be the shoulders that other women stand on, young women and others stand on. You don't have to be young. You can be just new into the process. So it is a, a sisterhood that has to come together. And when our, when our sisters speak truth, we have to make sure that they are respected for the truth that they speak. And that is really important in our country, not only for the person who comes forward, but for all, all the women in our country. And it's, um, it's, we're at a threshold, tipping point. You call it whatever you want to call it, but it's different. It's a transformative place because these women marched, as I said, now they are running, they're going to win. They're going to make a tremendous difference. And I hope that in your heart and in your, your heart, because it's all about courage, that you will think about doing that too. Because when women succeed, America succeeds. So on this podcast of What Will It Take? I think this is a really compelling example that offers so much inspiration in terms of what can really happen when one person, one woman, like Speaker Pelosi, who really decides to follow her her passion, be her authentic self, own and know her power, and use her voice, the incredible change that one person can make. And, you know, as I'm looking to highlight movement makers, the fact that these are hopeful movements. She represents movements of women. She represents movements that are happening in terms of transforming our politics and our government. And I also think that so many of the lessons that she continues to embody and offer, we all can learn from in terms of her relentless encouragement of to know your power and to be yourself and to own your accomplishments and that you can make a difference. And that also, we need you. We need everyone's voices right now. And everybody has something unique that only they can offer, and truly the potential of what the world would look like if everybody were to embody, to know that, and to sort of actualize on whatever their vision is for how they want to enact change. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this podcast. I hope that you've walked away with something that was inspiring or useful or helpful to you along your journey. And I look forward to many more conversations and to seeing you next time. Thank you for listening to What Will It Take? Conversations with legends and movement makers with journalist and author Marianne Schnall. For more information about this podcast or our host, check out whatwillittake.com or follow us on Twitter at Marianne Schnall.